Today's scripture comes from Jonah 1:17 to 2, 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You may be seated. Thanks, Barb. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that we can come and gather together today and sit under your word. We ask you that you would help us not only to take it into our minds, that it might form our understanding of you, but into our hearts that we might trust you even more. And God, that it would work its way into the work of our hands, uh, that we might be people who live our lives in every way to glorify you in all things. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Brett, I'm part of the team here, and it is my joy to be opening up the end of chapter one and chapter two of the book of Jonah today. Uh, we began this series a couple weeks ago, and when we did so, we were introduced to the prophet Jonah, who God called to leave his city and go to a foreign city to deliver a word against an evil people. And what we found is Jonah does the exact opposite. Jonah was called to leave and go, and he turned his back and went the opposite direction. Instead of traveling northeast to Nineveh, he went southwest to Joppa, and and southwest to Joppa was not far enough away for him, so he bought passage on a ship to take him to the ends of the earth, to the city of Tarshish. And a couple weeks ago, we asked the question, why? Why is Jonah running? What has gone on that has caused Jonah to head the opposite direction and then even beyond in terms of where he was called to go? Now, we're going to see more of that when we get to chapter four in a few weeks. But ultimately, Jonah runs because Jonah doesn't trust God. He didn't trust that God knew what he was doing. He thought he could escape the presence of God. And he thought he would be better off if he was the one who was in control. And so Jonah runs. And last week, we saw that when he runs... He gets onto the ship, he goes down into the ship itself, but because God actually knows what he is doing, and because God is actually present there in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, and God is actually in control, bringing about the events that will accomplish his will, God sends a storm. Last week, we looked at the storm, the sailors that Jonah had hired to be his transit away from the call of God, end up being his co-conspirators in his rebellion, And they eventually realize the real reason for the storm that they're in the midst of is the rebellious prophet they've got on board. And so they finally agree with Jonah that the best thing to do would be to toss him overboard. In their minds, in the minds of the sailors, Jonah's dead. 
in Jonah's mind, as he is tossed overboard into the storm, Jonah is dead. But what the sailors hadn't yet learned and what Jonah had apparently forgotten was that God had a plan and that God was present in the storm and that God himself was in control. Because even the rebellion and the storm itself and the certain death that Jonah was facing as he sunk into the deep, even that could not stop the plans of God. And as you heard already read here this morning, Jonah's prayer, at the very end of Jonah's prayer, it says it all. It says in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. In the minds of the sailors, Jonah's dead. In Jonah's mind, Jonah is dead. But in God's plans, it actually is just the beginning of a new start for Jonah. From this text today, what I want us to do is look at God's power, God's grace, and our humility. I want us to see God's power, God's grace, and our humility. But I want us to look at each of these three specifically as it relates to what Jonah prays in chapter 2, verse 9, when he says salvation belongs to the Lord. I, I think that text itself is the center of the passage that we're looking at today. And I think I could argue that the text itself is the center of the book of Jonah. And I think I could argue that the message from chapter 2 and verse 9 here in Jonah is the center of the entire story of the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So it's God's power in his saving work. It's God's grace in his saving work. And it's our humility as a response to what he has done for us. So first look with me at God's power. God's power. Look at the text, chapter 1, verse 17. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Do you see the fourth word in the text? It says Jonah appointed. Appointed. Because this story is so unique, so wild, we see a a great fish swallows up Jonah, and that's where our attention goes. It goes right to that act itself. But the point of the text being structured and written in the way that it is, is that we would see not just that the great fish comes and swallows up Jonah, but we would see that it was God who appointed the fish. Think of it like this. Probably you, like me, have a great YouTube algorithm directed at you. My YouTube algorithm's tight. I just get videos recommended that I like to watch. YouTube knows if it keeps feeding me videos of sharks, I will keep watching the ads before those videos. I love sharks. I've I've had the opportunity to snorkel with black tip and white tip reef sharks. I've scuba dived with them. I had the opportunity to be in a cage in the water with great whites banging into the cage. This is awesome. I've loved sharks since I was a little kid. I think it was my grade three science project was on sharks. I like sharks. So YouTube knows because I like sharks, I'll watch their ads. So the algorithm is just pumping me shark videos right now. I don't know. I watched all the Shark Week clips that they posted. You know, the ones where they're breaching and you don't like sharks as much as me. It's okay. (laughs) But I also got this video where this woman is telling the story of how a humpback whale saved her from a shark. Really, really interesting. It's not a new video, but it comes up regularly on my feed and I like it. What happens is this, this woman who's a whale scientist... Uh, is in the water, and this humpback whale, for 10 minutes, won't leave her side. It's pushing her. It's nudging her. Its pectoral fin is pushing her. It's, he's pushing her with his nose. And she doesn't really know what's going on until she gets back closer to the boat, and she looks down, and there's been a tiger shark circling her. This whale protected her from a potential attack from a really aggressive tiger shark. Now, the point of the story is that when you're interviewing her later on, they're, they're doing the interview, and she just says, 
Uh, you know, the, the, nobody in the interview goes, God protected you from the attack of the potential tiger shark. She just says that, that whales are really kind to other species, which is probably true. I'm not a whale scientist. I like sharks. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's probably true. I don't, I don't really know. But the point is, it just sort of happened that this is the whale who was in the neighborhood and whales do nice things. The point of the text is that you can't read it that way. Look at the text, verse 17 again. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The great fish did not just happen to be hanging out in the vicinity of the ship that is on its way to Tarshish that gets caught in the great storm. You have to read this seeing that God appointed the great fish to save Jonah. It's God who sends the storm. And it's God who sends the great fish because it is God who has a plan and he is working out that plan according to his will and for his glory. This is not just sort of happen chance. Ooh, look, a nice whale. No, you can't read it that way. And that's the point of the text. And it's not the only time we see this in the book of Jonah either. In our text, it says God appoints a great fish. But later in chapter four and verse six, it says God appoints a plant. And then in verse 7, it says God appoints a worm. And then in verse 8, he appoints the wind. And the point is, God's power is seen in the way that he commands his creation according to his will. He's in control. This is about a revelation of God's power. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is called of God to participate in God's plan for the people in Nineveh. But he runs the other way in disobedience. And the irony is, it is the great fish and it is the plant and the worm and the wind who are all appointed to also participate in God's plan. But unlike the prophet who is disobedient, the fish and the worm and the plant and the wind all obey. And that's the irony that we see. And if you read the book of Jonah without a sense of humor, you're going to miss out on half the fun. There's the irony right here in the text. Keep going. It says in Jonah 2 verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is the beginning of Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving, which is appropriate for our weekend. We have the story of Jonah being swallowed by the fish and we have Jonah's prayer and then at the end we have the result of God's action in the story. This is the way the text is structured. So when the sailors threw Jonah overboard, he assumed he was dead. They assumed he was dead. But God wasn't done with him. He went down to Joppa, he went down into the boat and he went down into the sea and even there in the depths, Jonah finds out that he cannot escape the reach of God's power because salvation belongs to the Lord. He cries out to God and God hears him. He knows the sailors cast him overboard, but what does it say in the text? It says, you cast me into the deep because God has purposed something in Jonah's life and for the sake of others, that he knows that it is God at work. He says the waves and the billows or the, the surge of the sea, they've passed over me. But he says they come from God. He doesn't just say the waves and the will billows passed over me. He says all your waves and all your billows passed over me. 
He sees God at work in power to judge and discipline his, his, his disobedience, yes, but ultimately he sees God at work to save him. Last week, John called that a severe mercy. Jonah's going through something because of his disobedience that may look very difficult and it may look very dangerous, but it is because of God's mercy in his life that he is at work in this way. So keep going. Jonah's still praying. It says in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jonah's reached the very edge of death. The picture that he's painting is that he is knocking on the doors of death, that the bars of death are going to close in upon him. He is as low as you can get. And it is at that place that God grabs a hold of Jonah. He's in the pit. And in scripture, the pit is the very place of death. And it's here, I would say even here, that God in his power reaches Jonah and pulls him back from certain death into the land of the living. Look again at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet... You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is the turning point in the prayer. This is the pivot point. And I'm sure when Jonah's telling this story later on, he's got his friends back home, and he's like, boys, you're not going to believe this one. Let me tell you a story. When he's telling that story then, it won't be a prayer directed to God. It'll be a story about God. And Jonah would have brought them in the story right to the edge of thinking that death was imminent, the horror of the picture that he is painting for them. And then he would have said, but God. This is one of the but God texts in the Bible. They're all over the Bible. It's Abraham on the mountain with Isaac. It's Moses standing at the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army coming in behind him. It's Joshua standing on the shore of the River Jordan trying to take the people across into the Promised Land but looking at the river and thinking it's too dangerous to do so. It's David in battle not knowing how God is going to bring about victory. It's Esther approaching the king at the potential price of her head. It's Elijah with the prophets of Baal. It's Daniel in the lion's den. But God. The enemy is closing in around us. But God. There was no way out of the situation. But God. We had all given up hope. But God. I thought I was beyond saving. But God. Romans chapter 5 picks this up in verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God. Christ said he is his arm too short to save. This is what the prophets ask rhetorically. Is his arm too short to save? 
When you start to doubt the power of God, I want to remind you what Jonah says, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And if the rebellious prophet Jonah was not too far gone, and if Jesus' disciple Peter, who had denied Christ three times in succession, was not too far gone, and if Paul the apostle, who had persecuted and murdered Christians for their following of Jesus, if he is not too far gone, why would you think that you have somehow gone beyond the reach of God's power to save? And you sit here and go, oh, we're all the church folks, Brett. We're actually here because we know this. Good. Some of you don't. Many of you might. And many of you who might think, I'm good, I know this, you are the ones who are up in the night, praying for the rebel in your life, awakened with tears, thinking about someone who is running the opposite direction like the prophet Jonah. Can I remind you that in that moment that God's power is at work? That when you pray, he hears, and that salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you, do you feel that when you look at the rebels in your life? You're not too far gone, and the ones you love are not too far gone, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And then look at how the text ends, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And verse 10 says, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jodah out upon the dry land. In God's power, he sends a storm to get Jonah's attention. In God's power, he has Jonah tossed overboard into the sea. In God's power, Jonah is swallowed up by the waves. In God's power, God appoints the fish to save Jonah from drowning. In God's power, God grabs hold of Jonah and pulls him back from the depths of the pit. In God's power, God speaks to the fish to go and deposit Jonah on the shore so that he might go and accomplish the mission for which he is called. And this is all the kindness of God in God's power. It's also hilarious. It's hilarious. It's supposed to be. The great fish pukes Jonah up onto the shore. The prophet who won't obey when God speaks to him, is inside the belly of the obedient great fish. And so God speaks to the great fish, put him back on track where he's supposed to be, and the fish pukes him up. You don't think that's funny? <laughs> that scene is hilarious. And all of this in God's power is meant to lead us to see God's amazing grace. We don't see God's power just for the sake of seeing God's power. We don't understand God's power for the sake of being only in awe of God's power, even though that's true that we're in awe of God's power. We, we have God's power revealed to us that we might then understand God's grace. When Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord, one of the things he's saying is that salvation is not found anywhere else. See, in our world, there is no deserving or undeserving when it comes to God's grace. There's only lost and found. There's no deserving or undeserving of God's grace. There are simply 
lost, and found. And perhaps no one in the Bible is more clearly lost than Jonah, and you could argue that perhaps no one is more sensationally or profoundly found. The story of Jonah is the epitome of grace. God said, go northeast, and Jonah went southwest. God said, go up, Jonah went down. God said, go speak, and Jonah went silent. God gave Jonah the words of life, and instead, Jonah chose the pathway of death. God gave Jonah the message of salvation, and in the end, it was Jonah himself who needed saving. Honestly, Jonah's kind of an easy guy to cheer against. Ever watch films? where you hate every character. You know, you watch a show and you're like, every one of them are horrible. And then they start to reveal the backstory and you're like, well, that guy did have a tough life. But he's bad. The rebellious, disobedient, horrible people. But you start to see a little bit of their story and you become sympathetic to the antagonist in the story. Jonah's kind of like that. We don't get the full unfolding of his past, but he's just a difficult guy to cheer for. He's totally undeserving of God's call in his life. He is totally undeserving of God's grace. God intervenes in his life in this powerful way, and Jonah experiences the grace of God being pulled back from the brink of death. And you kind of look at it, and you're like, he's not easy to cheer for. Kind of like me. Kind of like you. Now, you have to love me because I'm your pastor. And I have to love you because I'm your pastor. Sometimes folks are hard to cheer for. Jonah's one of them. But is this not a beautiful picture of God's grace? Is this not a beautiful picture of the gospel? Jonah disobeyed God and deserved death, but because of what Jonah's going to say in chapter 4, that God is a gracious God, slow, uh, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God doesn't let him go. I think it's one of the key points for us to see in the book itself. You may have disobeyed God, but the good news is he's not going to give up on you as fast as you've perhaps given up on him. And you've got to hang on to that. See, when God sent the storm and Jonah was tossed overboard into the raging sea, he assumed that God wanted him dead. And you can, you know, be gracious toward him in the fact that he just assumed that God wanted him dead. I've rebelled and now God's going to kill me. That's what he thought. But in reality, God wanted to reveal not just his power, but his grace. See, grace is unmerited favor. And for that, Jonah becomes the poster boy. Rosemary Nixon said, the Lord does not usually protect us from the consequences of our own choices and actions. In his faithfulness and graciousness towards us, he comes with us into the consequences of our choices in order to save us there. Salvation is not, in the first instance, the Lord God taking us out of our mess, but God meeting us within it. And that's what God does for Jonah. The gospel of Jesus is not just for those who've become deserving as to merit salvation. It is for those who've realized that on their own, they are sinking into the abyss and they are destined for the pit and that apart from the intervening grace of God, there is no way to be saved. 
See, we don't find God's grace at the high points of life when everything is good and there's perfect harmony in our lives. Just like Jonah, we encounter God's saving grace in the valleys and at the bottom. We all want to live at the mountaintops. But don't you know that there is a point when you in the valley can expect the saving work of God? When you can expect his presence with you? He is not just the God of the successful who live at the mountaintops and everything is rosy and all of their relationships are in harmony and things are always good and their children always listen to them. Those people don't exist. That's a figment of your imagination. God is the God of the valley. And though he find us in the valley, he takes us to the mountaintops from time to time that we might enjoy his power and his grace. But that's not where he finds us. You can only be found by God when you recognize how low you are. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of the desperation of our situation. And verse 1 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. <laughs> He's saying that you who were in the pit and were dead in your trespasses have now in Christ been made alive and have been lifted up to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. You were low and he lifts you. You've been made alive, saved by grace, and it's all the work of God, not because you deserved it, but because he is gracious. If you are a follower of Jesus, revel in the truth that you've experienced God's power through his grace because salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, to me, Ephesians chapter 2 sounds like an explanation of what happened to Jonah. It's the but God emphasis of Jonah's prayer, isn't it? Look back at the text, chapter 2, verse 5. says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And when we have the realization of God's power and this experience of God's power through his grace toward us, the intended response is one of humility. We've got God's power and God's grace, but we've got our humility. This is the response that is required from us. Put yourself in Jonah's shoes for a second. 
You get tossed overboard from a ship into the middle of a storm. You get swallowed up by a fish. And then in the midst of the darkness of being inside the animal, you realize how lost you really are. Just pitch black. Not knowing what's going on. He's got weeds up in his hair. What is happening? He starts to pray a prayer of thanksgiving because at some point in all that disorientation, if you're putting yourself in his shoes, you're realizing that you're not dead. You haven't drowned and that God must be in that. Christ said the most difficult way to get where God has called you to be goes through reluctance and disobedience grounded in a mistrust of God. The most difficult way from where he finds you to where he calls you, the most difficult way to get there is through disobedience that tries to head the opposite direction. And after all of that, Jonah's running in the wrong direction, buying a trip to Tarshish, getting caught in the storm, getting tossed overboard, getting swallowed up, and then getting vomited out on the shore. Jonah finds himself right back where he started, but now he's been humbled. He goes all the way around the mountain. His disobedience leads him in a circuit that takes him through ridiculousness and almost death, requiring God's power and grace to intervene. And then he ends up back where he started. This time, though, he's covered in whale goo. You know what I'm saying? Come on. Disobedience. It's not going to give you the fruit you hope it will. He was lost and he was as good as dead. He was desperate and in need of saving. There was no way he could have saved himself. He needed someone to save him. Christ said he the same is true for us. In our pride, we think we are in control and we can live as we please. In our pride, we think we can earn acceptance and a right standing with God in our own strength. In our pride. We think we can do it on our own. But when we're sinking into the abyss of our sin and when we are trapped in the pit of our shame, we begin to realize that we can't find a way out and that we ourselves are in need of saving. When we have tried everything that we can think of in our own strength, eventually we come to the end of ourselves. And when we have exhausted all of our own best efforts, it is then and only then that we realize someone else needs to save us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God sent Jesus to enter into the mess that we've made, to enter into the storm of our disobedience, that we might have a way out of it. On the cross, Jesus Christ sank into the abyss of our sin, and he entered into the pit of our shame. But he did not do so as a sinner himself. He did so as a substitute. This is grace. As our substitute, he pays the penalty for our sin in full. But you have to trust him. You have to recognize that you are in need. You have to recognize that you can't do it. Try as you might on your own. You have to recognize that you need someone to save you. This is the humility of our salvation. We need it. We can't do it on our own. We need another to save us. For those of you who have walked with Jesus for a long time, 
a very long time. You hear this, and it's a balm to your soul because you're reminded once again of the goodness and the power and the grace of God in sending Christ on our behalf. For those of you who are newer Christians, you go, I already got this. I'm in. You need to understand that the gospel of Jesus is not just the entry point into kingdom life. It is the way. That you yourself maybe haven't experienced it yet, but you'll end up in the valley again. And God will grab a hold of you, and he'll draw you out of it, and he'll bring you back to the path. Because if you could be perfectly obedient, you wouldn't need Jesus. You can't be perfectly obedient either before you become a follower of Jesus or after. This is what requires the repentance for our sin. Repentance is not just an initial entry point into the kingdom. It is an ongoing way of life. It is over and over and over and daily and daily and daily and sometimes multiple times a day recognizing that you've missed the mark that you've disobeyed, that you've missed it a bit, that you've not done the things that you should have done and you've done the things that you shouldn't have done and you come back to God once again and say, I know that I'm not outside the bounds of your power and I've not outrun the reach of your grace. Please forgive me once again and set me back on the dry land that I might walk the path you've called me to walk. Jonah's life is a picture God's power, God's grace, our humility. Let's get low before him that we might recognize how truly exalted we are being saved and adopted as his own. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me as we respond?